Hey, deserving listeners. So it's been a long time since we've had Rebecca on the podcast. Welcome back to the podcast, Rebecca. It's good to be here. My tech is better and I'm fully vaccinated, so I'm ready to go. Yeah, I'm jealous. You actually got vac- vaccinated. That's fantastic. You've even had the, the second shot. Had the second Pfizer. A word to the wise. Everyone get it in your non-dominant arm. Because it hurts afterwards. It's like, the fir- after the first one, my arm was rock hard and hot for three days. All right. So I have a, sim- I have a question along those lines from, a, from an upper tier patron, Jack, from Canada. He writes, my mom is 55 plus and lives with me. Hmm? Through the pandemic, my mom has gone out every single day and shows a high amount of distress when confronted about it. My partner and I don't want to catch COVID. We already have health issues, and my mom just keeps saying things like, oh, well, if I die, I die, as if she's the only one that would be affected by this. I can feel my resentment and worry building up. I feel like if I were to convince her to stay home, she would slump into a depression, Mm. and I feel stuck. I was wondering if you had any suggestions as to how to set some kind of physical distance boundary in the same household with rising tensions and hurt on both sides. Rebecca, what do you think? Oh, boy. I mean, this is the question of our time. Even if everyone agrees with each other at this point, there's rising tensions and hurt on all sides. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I guess it's it would... One thing would be to find out what would motivate her. I know an, an anti-masker that I had to... I chose to confront who was a client of mine. I said to them, it's like you're drunk driving every single day. Um, and that statement was able to like raise the conversation a little bit. So they understood how in danger I felt. Um, but it sounds like for your mom, I mean, I guess the option is to wear masks inside the house. That's what they're suggesting in LA right now where the rates are through the roof um, and, you know, is that an option that you guys would suggest to her? Yeah. Um, because there's a, there's a science part of this, um, that I'm learning is hard for people to understand. And there's an interdependence issue. I mean, we can see in cultures that understand in collective cultures, like in Asia, everyone just put a fucking mask on and did what they needed to do. And in some of these Western cultures, we're not able to do that. And why yeah. is that? Yeah, yeah. So uh, the the thing I'll say is I'm not a physician or an expert on this, and so don't listen to me. I would talk to a physician about this. But from what I understand, it's hard to stop COVID from spreading within a house. People, even with a mask, you're breathing, You're the germs are, you know, The way I understand it from the experts that I have heard is that someone who is shedding the virus and is sitting in a house, uh, within an hour or two, the the virus is just all over the in the air, just in these little particles. And and if you even spend a few minutes in that same space, then you're getting a pretty good dose of the virus. And so it's going to be hard to do. But you know, some people do it. People will get infected and will section themselves off on certain, you know, sections of the house and will have extremely limited air and physical contact between. I've heard some people doing that. But, you know, it sounds like, uh, Jack from Canada, that this is a bigger issue. It sounds like an emotional problem of trying to uh, 
uh, have you and your mom understand each other. And I would just tell her how you feel. It sounds like you've done it a little bit, but just sitting down and saying something like, so I know that you have an attitude of if you die, you die, and you are making that choice, which, you know, is, I guess, fine. But there's another side to this, which is I really just don't want to get sick, and Mm -hmm. I'm really, really scared. Mm -hmm. And when I see you not caring about me, it really hurts my feelings. And I know that you have a different point of view on that, but I really want to tell you that I have the point of view that when you go out and don't take precautions and then you come back into this house, every time that happens, it hurts. It makes me feel like, one, you don't care about my life, and two, you don't care about my feelings about my life. And, you know, I listen. I, I don't know if I miscommunicated that or you could say that maybe I'm being too precautious, but this is how I see things. And honestly, it's the way the recommendations are right now. So uh, usually if you say how you feel on that fundamental level of hurt, usually people can hear it, especially if you're doing it in a non-accusatory way. Uh, another question here, anonymous patron says, I'm interested in how you change your approach from clients to friends. Do you ever feel it overlapping when you're with your friends? Do you follow the same approach when friends have an issue? Rebecca, what do you think? Uh, You know, it's funny. As the pandemic has worn on and more people are just functioning at a lower and lower level of stress and anxiety and fear and mourning, I feel myself turning to my therapy skills more than I ever have. But usually in in the, the times before, um, I try not to rely on those skills. I try and just be a friend. But if somebody's really, really in trouble, I do put that therapy hat on. Does that make sense? Yeah, 100%. Okay. Yeah, for me, I have felt as though my therapist self and my my friend self I suppose are becoming more and more the same self I in the beginning of my career definitely had a different set of selves for each but the older I get the more they're sort of merging I'm becoming more casual with my clients in some ways and I'm becoming better at talking about feelings with my friends (laughs) Um, so there's that, but this is a common question that a lot of people have. It's like, you know, how do you turn it off or something? And the, the thing I'll say is, uh, I can't turn it off in the same way that someone who's a professional singer and they listen to a song, they can't not hear bad singing. Um, uh, a plumber can't look at a house you know, can't go to your house and use your faucet. And if something's wrong with your faucet, the plumber can't see that there's something wrong with the faucet. They're going to see something wrong because they know. Uh, Rebecca and I, if if our spouses or our friends or each other has some kind of personality issue, we can't not see that. But everyone has things. That's what you learn as a therapist. In the same way, I guess a, a plumber learns that every house has something wrong with its plumbing. Uh, for us, we learn everyone has traumas, everyone has defenses, everyone has personality problems, including ourselves. And so seeing that doesn't really change 
well, I guess it changes things, but it doesn't it doesn't fundamentally change the way I want to interact with my friends. You know, when I'm hanging out with my friends, I want to have a good time. I want to joke around. You know, I might notice a thing or two, but it's like I don't care because like, I'm not being paid to help them. And so it's it it helps me to maybe deal with it a little bit, honestly, because I, I don't take it as personally when they're jerk faces. But uh, I don't know about that one, but at least it gives me an opportunity to not take it personally. But that that being said, my types of friendships have changed radically since I've become a therapist. Since I've become a therapist, most of my close friends are other therapists or teachers because there's a level of intensity that they understand that my daily life has. But also, this happened to me recently. I ran into someone I knew like 30 years ago, and they asked me about the person I was dating then and asked me if I was still in touch with them. And I said, I, I can't be friends with an active addict in the work that I do now. No, I'm not in touch with that person. Um, so it does change. I would say I am kind of a no drama Obama. Like if, if someone's a total trade wreck, it's hard for me to be friends with them because I just I do it at the office. Like, you know, my my. I don't know. My friends have it together. I don't know about your friends. No, but every everyone in my well, life. Well, has, you're my friend, Rebecca. <laughs> uh, that's Do a, you have it together? That's a total joke. Um, I would say that uh, there's certain issues that I stay away from in terms of making a friendship with someone because I know I can't deal with that level of drama in my life. And I bet for everybody that's different. Well, are you saying that? Because of your assessment skills, you can sniff that out and avoid it more easily? I, yeah. Yeah. Or yeah. If, if I'm friends with someone for a really long time and they've never dealt with issue X or issue Y, sometimes I feel myself pulling back in that friendship. Right. Because, but I think everybody would probably do that. Where you're like, okay. <laughs> well, I don't know. I think that it's likely, given what you're saying that for non-clinicians, non-experts, it's harder to detect. You will feel like, well, it's my fault mm. or uh, maybe I'm not reading this right. And um, and I can relate to that. There are relationships in my life that I have at some point decided, ah, I don't know if this is overall the best situation. And I have some personal feelings, but I also have some quote unquote clinical ideas as to why that would be. And it helps to guide my decision-making, I think. Um, whereas without that, I might feel like I was making a big deal out of nothing, that sort of thing. And I don't know if you've watched The Flight Attendant. Have you seen that on HBO yet? No. no. It's really worth watching. It's part murder mystery, cop drama, part woman, active addict, active alcoholic, active sex addict, trying to unravel her. She doesn't want to look at either of those issues, but what's going on around her is making her look at it. And um, after me and my partner watched it, we had a conversation like, could you be friends with someone in that level of addiction? And I was like, I could not. <laughs> like, that would be too much for me. Um, so it was an interesting. Why? Why? Why would it be too much for you? Well, she was drinking at every meal, or not eating and just drinking. 
Um, and that, I just, that level of chaos and that level of disconnection, if I know someone's high all the time, having grown up in California in the seventies, I'm like, no, you know, no, thank you. <laughs> I saw that with the adults when I was a kid and the level of chaos that that leads to, it's just not attractive to me. It's not how I want to connect to someone on my free time. What were they all high on in the seventies? They were stoned. I believe that my third grade teacher was drinking beer during class. Yeah. Yeah. It was complete adult chaos. Yeah. I, I seem to remember there were a couple teachers that were rumored to smell like alcohol uh, and looking back. And at the time I think I thought, well, that's ridiculous. There's just, why would a teacher drink? I lived a pretty sheltered life and uh, my, like I never saw my parents drinking. I never what? saw anyone. Or, yeah, never. I, I, by the time I was 20 years old, I, I had probably seen my parent, maybe my dad drink once. And yeah. And of course, no marijuana or anything like that. It was a very, um, very sheltered life that I lived com- compared to what you're talking about, Rebecca. I didn't hear swearing. I remember when, I was in like third or fourth grade. I could count on one hand how many times, which one was it? How many times I had heard or how many times I had said a swear, Mm. Uh, like the F word or the S word or something. I I remember that's, and I remember thinking how weird it was that swear word existed because they just seemed so powerful and so dark. And then, you know, fast forward 10 years and every other word was an, was an F word, but uh, even to this day, <laughs> well, I, I, I overheard my wife. I was just, because I, you know, when we're talking, we're swearing all the time and I think it doesn't register, but I overheard her talking to herself in the other room the other day, or maybe she was talking to the dogs or I can't remember what she was doing. She wasn't talking to anyone. She was talking to herself or the dogs and it was every other word was a, was a swear and I just, I just got a kick out of it. It just thought it was just I don't know. I I I think I had a unwritten rule that I wanted to marry someone who would swear in on their own all the time. I think that was a goal of mine. And you succeeded. Yeah, success. So, a uh, funny story from my childhood. Uh when I was a kid, there were you know what a roach clip is? <laughs> Yes. So it's a... Oh, yeah, yeah. That's when you have a little marijuana Yeah, thing. so it's a tiny... This is back when people smoke joints, and it, it's a tiny little clip, and it's usually, if you live in California in the 70s, it's very ornately decorated, perhaps with large feathers. And I remember there was a time that I found one and, like, wanted to wear it. Like, I didn't know what it was. Like, I wanted to wear it, like, as a... And a pin or on a hat or I don't think I was at home, but my mother was like, no, 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 (laughs) you cannot wear the roach clip. And I was like, but why? It's so pretty. It has these huge feathers coming off it. Um, So, yeah, I think we had vastly different experiences when it comes to drugs and alcohol growing up. All right. Well, another email from an honest patron. My partner has been going through a depressive episode. My partner has been going through a depressive episode. I have been accused I have been accused of coddling him. Mm. Where is the line drawn between enabling and supporting? I've done lots of research on this topic, but I feel like I'm not getting concrete answers. So Rebecca, 
where's the line when it comes to depression between enabling and supporting? What do you think? <laughs> this is so big. I mean, I think it depends on the person. It depends on your family history. It depends on what you can tolerate. I've been working with someone for a long time whose marriage ended for other reasons, but they supported their partner through, I think, a 15-year depressive episode. So, you know, different people stay for different reasons. I think it really comes down to you and what you can do and what your personal family history is with codependence. What do you think? Well, uh, yeah, it is a big issue, and you touched on some of the things. I think it's important to delineate between what enabling is and what it isn't. And in substance abuse, it's pretty easy to identify if you know what you're looking for. Someone is drinking or some other kind of habit, uh, you know, substance-related and enabling is helping them to keep using and protecting them from the consequences. Like uh, someone is hungover from a binge and you call in sick for them and you make excuses for them. Oh, well, you know, he's really busy with work or, oh, well, he's just really tired or something. And what you're doing is you're trying to protect your spouse, which is good. But, uh, but the bigger picture is you're actually uh, you're enabling the use by protecting them from the consequences. And you're also trying to solve your own anxiety by uh, preventing any consequences happening to the family or preventing any kind of mood problems from, because you kind of know as the enabler that if they get fired, then they'll start drinking even more or something. And so there's a tremendous amount of anxiety you're feeling as, as an enabler. And it's a tough situation. You're kind of trapped really. And the solution to that often involves, it's usually complicated, but it usually involves stop enabling. And this is what Al-Anon will talk about, depending on what sort of phase you are in recovery as a codependent. But often it involves, you know, I'm not going to, you sit down with the person, you're just like, so I have been enabling your use and it's because I care about you and I love you. But I've realized now that, my behavior is actually keeping the problem afloat. And I hear that you're not ready to quit, but that doesn't mean that I have to go along and, and uh, you know, uphold and do my part to uphold this addiction. I really want you to get help and I, I, I'll be there for you a lot to help you, but I won't be here to help you continue to use. And I still love you and I'm still with you, but I'm not going to call in sick for you. I'm not going to make excuses. If anyone asks, I'm just going to say that you were drinking because that's the truth. And I, I'm through telling lies. And honestly, I think this might help. If you actually did have consequences, maybe you would actually see that this is a bigger problem than you have control over and that you'll actually get the help you need. You go to recovery treatment center, you go to AA, and that's what I'm going to do. So that's usually the solution. But what about depression? Um, what are we talking about with depression? Well, when someone's depressed and you're helping someone, you know, they're down, they have a hard time with energy, they don't want to go to birthday parties, their boss might call and say, what's up with this person? Okay. So on one hand, 
maybe you lie and you say, well, they're, they're just sick or they have the flu or they're really busy with work or something. Is that enabling? Well, I don't know. I, I, it's hard to say because the person with the depression doesn't have a choice. Now, you could argue that in some situations, say, some people are um, not going to treatment and they're in denial of their depression. Well, you could enable that. You could enable the fact that the person is, I don't have a problem. The world has a problem. Or I'm not depressed. I'm, I'm just sort of, I just really like laying at home and watching Netflix all day. Um, upholding or enabling someone's lack of treatment motivation or negativistic belief system or something, or even literally just telling them that they're worthless and supporting the, their ideas of worthlessness and hopelessness, I guess that would be enabling. But coddling sounds like you're actually being nice to the person. <laughs> it sounds like you're, you're trying to help, that you're, you care, and that you're being there for them and helping them through it. You know, you wouldn't say if someone had cancer and they were uh, going through cancer treatment and they're fatigued and sad and scared and in a bad mood and you're being very supportive, you wouldn't call that coddling or enabling. You would just call that helping someone as they go through something very, very difficult. So I guess it kind of depends on, you know, what coddling means and and what people are saying. But it doesn't surprise me that an ill-informed outsider would look at a couple and say, oh, that person is depressed, there's something wrong, and, you know, their spouse is just so coddling to them. It's a very frequent criticism that people will have, not only to partners, but also to parents. Mm-hmm. And it's this blaming of a situation where people just don't know what's happening and, and, they're, and they're scared, and they're just looking for an easy answer. It's easy to find a scapegoat rather than just looking at a situation and go, wow, that must be really hard, and this is a pretty messy situation and their partner is struggling. Uh, I guess some people might accuse someone of coddling because they want to blame someone rather than have to do something about it. You know, to, to, to see, you know, if you had a friend who was helping someone with their partner's depression and you saw it for what it accurately was, now you might feel responsible for helping the two of them as well. And if you want to avoid that, then you'll just blame the, the partner, right? Yeah, I mean, also, I think depression in general overwhelms people. It's not an easy fix. It can go on for, I mean, the diagnosis itself needs, what, six months? <laughs> yeah. And then it can go on for years. Um, a family member told me a story about a, helping their kid with depression and just not, they, the... The parent was someone that got out of bed every morning and had a job that they loved and went off to it. And they just couldn't understand how their child was not having that experience of life. And um, it is it is overwhelming and hard to comprehend how depression literally takes someone down. Um, I love the description that depression is anger turned inward. So imagine how much anger you have towards the world and imagine if all that anger was turned in towards yourself. Um, so I think it is hard to conceptualize and it is hard to support someone where it's it's taking over. Yeah. 
And we also have a hard time tolerating other people's choices. I mean, I definitely am a highly sensitive person. And for me, it was at its worst when my child was in elementary school. And there were so many events that were piercingly loud and awful. And I just could not be in those environments. And the absolute worst one was Friday night's uh, kid basketball league. So these are like eight-year-olds, and it's this enormous gym, and there's like seven games going on simultaneously. And it was so loud. And every week I would make an excuse of why I couldn't go. Um, And I remember my wife's parents were asking if I was depressed and it was actually like, no, it's a sensory issue for me. Like that environment for me is just about the worst thing I can imagine. But the idea that I would like step out of the norm and say like, I can't do this was just really unacceptable in their family structure. And so it did cause a lot of tension in our family. And, you know, it was, it was hard in our relationship to say like, I just can't do it. I'm super sorry. I want to, I want to be the person who can, but I can't. And depression is the same way. Yeah. Sideline, I want to talk about transcranial magnetic therapy. Have you talked about it yet? Yeah, a little bit. Okay. Go go for it. Uh, so I'm super fascinated. I have a client that's about to start. Um, for folks who don't know, it looks like you're going to the dentist's office, but there's this gigantic helmet that goes on, and they... S- maybe you know more than me, they send magnetic pulses through your brain and it can really rewire the brain out of depression. And the folks that I've known who've done it have had a great experience. So if you think like if that's one cure, that's a pretty intense issue. (laughs) You would need that level of treatment. Yeah. From my limited understanding of the research is that for some treatment-resistant depression cases, they will uh, look towards transcranial magnetic stimulation as a possible treatment, and there is limited success. Uh, there is obviously a placebo effect for some people, and but uh, there are some people who actually uh, do find some relief, and some people find tremendous relief from that treatment. It's similar to any treatment for depression, that when you actually look at the data, there's a pretty sizable placebo for all of them, which is fine, great, you know, if, if you take uh, some kind of medication or even transcranial magnetic stimulation treatments and you're better, then, you know, great. So it's not like placebo means it's not worthwhile, but there's also a small effect size of those who actually benefit from it. And from what I understand, the physiology is that it stimulates certain regions of the brain that they're trying to target and those regions have been associated with possible relief to depression for some people. There are certain areas of the brain that are more involved in serotonin production. Um, I'm trying to remember the specific technical term from my doctorate degree. It would be like serotonogenic, serotonogenic, I think is what it called. And um, I think you're wrong. (laughs) I probably am. It sounds kind of like, it sounds like just close enough that it sounds like I could be right, but I'm probably wrong. Uh, But yeah, depression is awful. And people who have it will 
talk about how it's crushing and ongoing and they've tried so many different things. And, you know, that's why we resort to things like transcranial magnetic stimulation. Some people even put devices in their brain to stimulate certain pieces of their brain. And that that also has limited success. But there's uh, this notion in society that somehow depression is, oh, you're just kind of down and, you know, you just kind of have the blues. No, there I've I've had people close to me who have been so depressed that for months all they can do is just stare at the wall. They can't they can't even watch TV because they don't even have the motivation for that. And just deep deep bottomless pit of hopelessness and worthlessness and fatigue and lack of concentration and and the, why go on and you know this is why suicide is a risk for these individuals. So it's it's rough and to look at someone who is supporting someone going through that and saying you're coddling and enabling them is uh, probably ignorant <laughs> to the reality of the situation. But my most um, important question for you, Rebecca, is in the basketball mm. games, did they lower the rim? <laughs> oh, yes. Oh, okay. The limb was the limb. <laughs> the limb was lowered. Um, yeah. But just imagine if you can. Yeah, it's the most echoey thing. I mean, on a good day, basketball courts are pretty echoey. But if you have, you know, dozens of children, eight-year-olds playing multiple games and all the parents, I just can't imagine the the echoey din that must have been permeating your highly sensitive eardrums. It it pushed me to the edge, I must say. <laughs> The reason why I ask about the rim is because when I played basketball as an eight-year-old, they wouldn't lower the rim. They kept it at, I think it's 10 feet. <laughs> That's horrible. I know. And it just drives, and we had to play with a regular size uh, basketball too. There's all sorts of problems when I see that. I'm you know, Like with kids, they'll play t-ball and they put the ball in a tee so the kids can hit it more easily. And they also will shorten the bases so that they're not running miles, you know, with their tiny little legs. But with basketball, somehow they just keep it the same. And, you know, our, our games, we'd play full games and our, our, our scores would, at the end of the game, would be like eight to six. <laughs> because none of us, uh, even the most athletic of us, didn't have the arm strength to, to launch it that high in the air. And with that, let's go to break. What do you say, Rebecca? I'm um, sorry. Yes. <laughs> Hey, Deserving Listeners, as you know, I'm constantly recommending that people go to therapy. We all need therapy from time to time. One of the options available that is definitely worth checking out is BetterHelp.com. So if you're looking for a therapist, I would give it a try by going to BetterHelp.com slash Kirk. Make sure you use the slash Kirk because you get 10% off your first month and it helps us out. I get a lot of emails from you saying that you're looking for a therapist. As you watch these videos, I know many of you have been motivated to find your own therapist but I know it can be really hard to find a good one to work with. Like I said, one of the options available to try is betterhelp.com slash Kirk. And you should know that this service is available to clients worldwide, which is amazing. I've been told that you can start communicating with your therapist in under 24 hours. You can message with your counselor anytime. Plus, you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions. And I've been told that it's often less expensive than in-person therapy. So go to betterhelp.com slash Kirk to get 10% off your first month of therapy today.
All right, we're back from the break. Next question, patron Tyler says, what are some good entry-level jobs for psychology students? Hmm. I'd like to be a psychiatrist in the future, but until then, what are some good jobs to look for and maybe get experience in the field? Rebecca, what do you think? Well, a lot of people do entry-level case management work who are interested in the mental health field. But that being said, some of my favorite therapists, they were, one was a a school bus driver. Um, Another one uh, worked at a a check-in desk at an auto rental place. Um, (laughs) I mean, there will be some requirements that you do work in the mental health field, but if you're looking at people and thinking about people, um, you're on your way. Yeah. What's your weirdest job? Before I was an oh, I, I was an ice cream man. Mm-hmm. You know, with I drive around neighborhoods. Oh, in, really? In Everett, yeah. And uh, <laughs> I was an ice cream Joe. I was like the the most quintessential ice cream man of the Northwest. What about you? Oh boy. Well, I uh, was employee number three at what was then Toys and Babeland, which is now just Toys. So oh. I sold sex toys for two years. Which you was were employee actually... number three. Yeah. That's incredible. Yeah. That's crazy. So tell everyone about the wonderful history of Toys and Babeland in Seattle. Uh, so it was the first uh, women-owned sex story business in Seattle. I think it's now been bought out by a Chinese conglomeration. But um, it was super cool. There, It was two lesbians and uh, a, a bunch of people that wanted to sell sex toys and talk about sex toys all day. Um, and the best part was when the nurse, so it's on Capitol Hill and the nurses from Harborview would come down on their break. And especially the ER nurses would have amazing stories of things that had gone wrong with people's genitalia as (laughs) the best was someone, um, put their penis in a, in the hole in a camping stove and it got stuck and they came into the ER buck naked with the camping stove under a blanket <laughs> like had to explain what had happened um, oh my god <laughs> so it was a it was a pretty entertaining job it was pretty low paying but the best i had some pretty cool moments one was that this was so long ago this is like almost got 25 years ago i co-led a sex information workshop with dan savage and because it was Dan Savage, the room was packed. And that was definitely um, a highlight. Um, but, you know, famous people would come in and, you know, all kinds of things happened. All kinds of interesting conversations happened. Yeah, the thing that uh, that a- another feature of the, on you know, the overall sex positivity and education and, uh, you know, queer uh, positivity... Uh, movement because when people think about sex toys, you usually think about some. I mean, I don't want to call it seedy, but it there are there's a certain style of sex shop that is fine and it's sex positive as well. But it I don't know it 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 appeals to a different demographic. Let's just put it that way. And toys in Bayland had a a really it almost felt like an Apple store where. <laughs> You walked in and everything was on display and it it didn't have any objectification images really. 
and it just felt like 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 a Starbucks or something on a certain level. Uh, well, the good side of Starbucks, I would suppose. And the other thing I remember is that you can try out toys. You can go in the back room and actually. Mm, no. No. <laughs> you shouldn't. There was a room where you could try on harnesses. Oh. Um, but we I think people were actually trying out I, things. I know. I know. There was a lot of managing of oh. that. You, they were all plugged in so you could like try them on your hand. Right. Um, but I, I mean, I saw and I knew people like, okay, I'm going to try this thing out. And I'm right. going to go in yeah. the back room. Yeah. Mm, yeah. So you yeah. had to police that? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Not the most fun thing to do. <laughs> what, what do you mean? Like, you'd be like, hey, in there, you've been in there too long. No, you would, you would see people heading back there and say, no, no, no. Uh, I don't know if this was my memory or not that we like, I wanted to chain the vibrators and things so that people can only take them so far. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, there's a lot of weird things that happen. You know, yeah. the, I mean, the most unfortunate were the people that came in and wanted to tell you stories of their sexual exploits. And it's like, come on, dude. Like, I'm, I really don't care how many cock rings you can wear at once and how heavy they are. Like, I'm at work. I don't care that you're wearing them right now. Like, I... <laughs> <laughs> I want to stop talking to you. Um, so, yeah, it, it definitely had some strangeness to it. Um, but I sure learned a lot about people and their desires and how their partners were either encouraging or blocking desires or how they were just discovering their desires. Or And this was a funny sideline that in Seattle, due to the tech industry, Many partners were not available and were therefore give the non-tech industry spouse an unlimited budget at Toys in Babyland. And um, those people were interesting, too. Like, I'm in charge of pleasuring myself now. <laughs> I want one of these and one of these. I mean, and... so in my head, I have a bunch of Microsoft use wives. Is that yes. what you're talking about? Yeah. 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 Um, well, to answer your question, patron Tyler, about entry-level jobs, so Toys in Babyland is one. Um, and, yeah, what Rebecca was saying about being a, a bachelor's-level caseworker, there's, there are bachelor's-level jobs at mental health agencies that you can work. There's, they sometimes call them paraprofessionals or youth workers, or you can also do, like, chemical dependency outreach in schools as, as a BA-level person. You can also work for the crisis line. That's also oh, yeah. something you can do. Uh, but generally speaking, people usually ask me this question, and I think it comes from a place of one anxiety of like, I need to prepare. And it's like, no, you don't. It's fine. As Rebecca's saying, there's plenty of good therapists that were bus drivers before. It's it's not it, – there's, there's really and, – and the other thing I, I, that it's based on is somehow – there's a chance you can sort of get a leg up on your fellow students mm -hmm. if you have experience, and that's just not possible. I was just telling a student this yesterday. Being a therapist is so weird. It's such a weird job that there's really no job like it that you could have prior to being authorized to do it that would give you experience that would be analogous to actually working as a therapist. And so, and and therapy training institutions understand that. So. Uh, you know, sometimes people say, well, I'm applying for graduate school, but I don't have any experience and my, my bachelor's degree is in literature. And I'm like, you are completely average as an <laughs> applicant. Like the, 
99% of applicants have no experience and their bachelor's was not in psychology. And even if their bachelor's was in psychology, that doesn't qualify them because psych degrees at big universities, bachelor's, have nothing to do with therapy. <laughs> so, I mean, sometimes there's abnormal psych kind of, but, uh, but often not. It's usually like just memorizing certain things or uh, anyway. So that's what I'll say about that. That being said, though, programs do have prereqs to kind of get you ready. Um, and so just know that everybody kind of enters from the same place and that teachers in grad school, just like you were saying, are kind of used to ramping people up yeah. uh, to do the work. Another question here up to your patron, Melissa, from San Antonio says, I've been seeing my therapist for about six months for depression, anxiety and childhood trauma. I'm curious to know what she thinks about me in terms of analysis. How can I ask her what she thinks of my history, personality, or diagnosis? Mm -hmm. Rebecca, what do you think? Um, I mean, I would just just ask her. Right. You know, are, how do you conceptualize my case? How are we progressing? I mean, I, as a therapist, would be excited if somebody asked me that question. Yeah. Um, because then I know you're you're really thinking about it. Um, yeah. I love checking in with my clients because that means we're working together. So I would say go for it. Yeah, just ask, 100%. And if your therapist is taken aback, I would wonder why. <laughs> like uh, they're either not confident or they're not educated or they're thinking about these. But every therapist, and I spend a lot of time with my trainees on this because they're rarely asked this question of, Tell me in one sentence what's going on with this client. Mm -hmm. Don't don't just one sentence. Summarize the whole thing in one sentence. You should be able to do that. At least maybe two or three sentences. You should be able to conceptualize every single client in that way. And if you can't, let's work on practicing that so that you can do it. It's a skill. It's definitely something that you learn over time. But um, you need to be able to do that, particularly when a client is wondering what's going on. You know, like clients deserve to know. It's not like you go into the doctor and they secretly diagnose you with cancer and then like start pumping all sorts of chemicals into your body and you're just like, well, I, I don't know what they diagnosed me with, but you know, they're doing a lot of things. So, you know, that, that therapy shouldn't be like that, obviously. Mm -hmm. And it often is, which is a problem. And again, I blame education and sort of culture in our field of sort of top-down mentality of like, well, what would clients don't need to know, you know, they, and, but I think that's just all fear of being evaluated by your clients. You know, if, if you present your conceptualization and your treatment, then your client could be like, I don't like that, or I don't think that's good or something. And it's easier to keep clients in the dark, which is, you know, just abhorrent. Well, and to go the flip side, I remember when I was teaching, especially an internship, um, teaching clients, teaching students how to say that kindly. Um, you know, there is a desire to want to tell clients what you see. Um, and so to really think about it in a well-rounded way. And the example that I would give was um, I had a client who had come to me because he was having an affair with his boss. And when at one point he said to me, and he was really in denial that there was any problem with that or that any of his other problems were stemming from that. And I remember at one time he asked me, what's going on here? And I was so fed up that I said, 
you know, you're having an affair with your boss and you haven't told your wife and it it's that's what's going on here. And he literally like tipped over and fell over on the couch, like having someone else say it to him was a very intense experience for him. Um, so it's interesting, like some clients aren't ready to hear it. Um, but if you are asking for it as a client, I think that's great. And it shows that you're really invested in your treatment. All right. So this next question from patron Jess from Cincinnati says, how can a person tell if they want kids or if they want increased connection and attachment? Hmm. My wife and I, same sex couple have been together for 10 years. Recently, I've started to want to have kids, which is something I was never remotely interested in before. This is a deal breaker for my wife. How can you tell the difference between wanting kids and just wanting more connection in a long-term relationship? Rebecca, what do you think? Well, having kids won't give you more connection in your long-term relationship for a long time because all of that energy, this is bringing baby home stuff from... um, Oh, my God. They're in Seattle, and he always wears a fisherman's cap. Uh, Ivers? No. (laughs) He's a very famous family therapist in Seattle. They're they're a couple. The Gottmans. Oh, fisherman's cap. (laughs) Well, you have to to admit, I answered that question correctly. He's in Seattle, and he always wears a fisherman's cap. (laughs) That is Ivers. (laughs) (laughs) But I like your answer better, actually. Yeah, um, so for those who know, Ivers is a restaurant, seafood restaurant in Seattle, and there's a lot of iconography around him. Anyway, sorry. And for those of you who don't know, John Gottman is a very famous family therapist yeah. who, with his wife, has done extensive research. And he also always wears a black fisherman's cap, so it would be yeah. easy to confuse the two. Um, so having a, a baby is a 24-7 job. Um, I would hang out with some babies, maybe babysit, maybe take somebody's two-year-old for the weekend. Um, it is a tremendous amount of work, especially in our culture now where you may not have family in the same town or a support system. Um, so it, it's a lot. Well, what they're saying is, I think, I feel distant from my wife And I wonder if that's why suddenly I want to have kids, even though up until this point I never wanted to have kids. Am I just – should I focus on my relationships and then the urge for having a kid will go away? What do you think about that? I don't know. (laughs) uh, I don't know if there's a – for me there wouldn't be a connection. Um, I'm stumped by this question, to be honest. As someone in a same-sex relationship – who chose to have kids, having watched jealously a lot of my same-sex friendships who didn't have kids, and they seem to be more connected. I mean, there's a great book called uh, Breaking Up or Breaking Through for same-sex couples. And often in same-sex couples, we're not given a roadmap of what's next. Um, And I would recommend that book to see um, how to deepen your connection with your partner. Yeah. Yeah. The choice to have kids is very, very complicated. And patron Jess, it sounds like you're in that 
exploratory phase. You're having some urges, and you're also wondering, is it real? Because it's a big commitment. And so it's good that you're mulling it over, and I would just continue to explore it. It's a decision that people usually don't take lightly and shouldn't take lightly, and you want to be real careful about that. And, yeah, sure, you could experiment. I mean, one experiment you could do, Jess, is you could try to increase the closeness with your partner or get closeness with other people. And if your desire for having a kid goes away, then you'll know that you'll know the answer to your question. Or if the desire to have a child continues, then you'll say, oh, I guess this is sort of beyond my effort of trying to or my needs of being close to people. You may not bond with your child. That's a myth that everybody instantly connects with their child and their child builds some unknown place of love that they never knew that they had. Um, lots of people don't bond with their children for all kinds of reasons. Well, one, because the child is from day one trying to get away from you. Uh, so that interferes a little bit. <laughs> um, anonymous Upper Tier Patron, she writes, I wrote an email to my ex-therapist. So I wrote an email to my former therapist from an online therapy site a month ago updating her about my life. She is still she has still not replied to my email and it's really getting me down. I had a very good relationship with her and she was the only person I could I could nearly I could be 100% myself with. I don't know why she hasn't replied yet and I'm worried that I might have done something wrong. Like you, she is a university professor and I do think one reason is that she is busy and she forgot to reply to me. Should I email her again, or is that being too desperate? Rebecca, what do you think? Uh, so it's if it's right now and you've done this, if it's COVID and she's a university professor and a therapist, she is probably just like me, and I'm not even a university professor right now, and someone asked me to do something, something and it was on the bottom of the list that day and then 20 other things popped on the list and I'm super sorry and I'm sure she wanted to get back to you and tell you how happy I'll do it for you I'll answer the email dear anonymous upper tier patron I loved working with you and I'm so happy that you're doing well just know that I am so busy right now and I I wish you all the best do take care love your former therapist yeah yeah, absolutely. She could be busy. Uh, therapists and professors can be extremely busy. And some people just don't reply to emails very easily. And it's really common for emails to just get buried. And then months later, they're like, well, it's too late now. So it it it's not necessarily, obviously, that you did something wrong or that they don't care about you. The other thing is, is there could be a policy of not replying to those kinds of emails from clients because it is a bit of an ethical and legal uh, issue. Now, of course, this needs to be discussed at termination, and this is what I do with clients. I'll say, so by the way, if you ever call me or email me or text me or something, an update, there's a pretty good chance that I ethically cannot respond because if I do, it means we're now engaging in another professional relationship. You know, just take a real extreme example. You uh, terminate with a client, and three years later, the client 
emails you and says, oh, you know, I'm doing this, I'm doing that, and, you know, I'm not doing really well, and, I, you know, I don't, I don't really know what's going on in my life. And then you email back and you say, wow, that sounds real tough. Thanks for the update, and I wish you well. And then the person attempts suicide. Well, it could be argued that that little interaction over email was at least an alert to you that the client might need some help with their suicidality. And the fact that the therapist didn't do anything in that situation means that they're potentially liable for not their, you know, upholding their duty to protect. And so what some therapists will do is they'll just say to every client, look, I, I can't respond to those kinds of emails. If you want to re-engage with me, then you can ask to reinitiate therapy and then we can talk in person. But anything short of that, I, I can't reply for ethical reasons. And I'm really sorry about that. And I will be curious about how you're doing, of course, but ethics, you know, deem it that I can't do it that, that way for you. Um, and you ask a question, you know, should I email her again? Sure. You know, uh, is it being too desperate? You know, we have bigger fish to fry than coming across as desperate. <laughs> Anonymous patient writes in, has the issue of premenstrual dysphoric oh. disorder ever come up in your practice? I used to deal with with what felt like legit depression, inability to imagine positive outcomes for my life, swift rage, increase in dark thoughts, etc. Then I would get my period and it would end and mm-hmm. I'd feel normal again. And it always made me feel very confused and like my experiences were not real. I thought I had severe mental issues before realizing it was related to PMS and talking to my OBGYN. Feels awkward to bring this up because of sexism, but curious about a therapist's perspective. Uh, Rebecca, what do you think? Uh, Every client that I have that has a uterus brings this up. I've even done art therapy about it, kind of mapping your cycle, uh, mapping your mental state throughout your cycle. And you're right, because of sexism, we don't talk about this at all. One, we're told as women, uh, your cycle impacts you. And so sometimes professionally, we have to say like, no, it doesn't. I'm fine. But um, I, a lot of women, uh, not only women, anyone with a uterus has told me that um, this is really present in their life. And I feel it in my own life. You know, there are three days a month you probably shouldn't talk to me, especially if you live with me. So, yes. And it's uh, often therapy is really a hormonal issue. So this is one of those things where it's medic. uh, I have to rule out something medical. So I uh, refer clients to get hormonal testing with with a naturopath to look at um, how their hormones are impacting them. And all kinds of things can factor in, too. Iron deficiency, thyroid issues are huge. I could go on in this issue for a very long time. Kirk, what do you think? Well, yeah, that's good. Uh, and yeah, I have had clients who have suffered from this uh, to varying degrees, as Rebecca is talking about. And yes, because of sexism, one, we don't talk about it because women are told from day one to shut up about various things, including this. But also the notion that one's mood can be uh, can vary over the cycle is used by the patriarchy to keep women down. It was literally 
talked about, I remember during Mondale running for president in 1984. <laughs> Hillary Clinton, too. Yeah. But, yeah, okay. It's like, well, what if she's on her period and she's all crazy, you know? And it, so on one level, we want to acknowledge it because it does happen for many. But on another level, we don't want to add to the fuel of of sexism and oppression and and ammo for the patriarchy to keep women down. So, uh, but we're in a safe place here and we can talk about it. And yeah, it absolutely can happen. And some people can have really severe cases of it. And the typical course is about a week before menstruation, there's severe uh, mood problems and anxiety. You can be just full on depressed for that week and full on irritable and low energy and you, you sleep too much or you can't sleep or your concentration completely, you know, it doesn't, your brain doesn't work or you're just highly anxious. One of the uh, uh, misunderstandings or sort of, uh, I don't know, misinformation that's out there is that the menstrual cycle or uh, the hormone changes around birth, you know, giving birth, pre prenatal and postnatal are usually associated with depression, but they're often associated with anxiety too. You can develop mm-hmm. OCD around uh, the birth of your child before or after or around your menstrual cycle. Hormones have so many effects on our body, including our brain and our personality and how we, our energy and just everything. And so when you have a, 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 a you know, dips and valleys and peaks of various hormones through your body every month, there's a chance that something's going to be different in this way. And so, uh, yeah, getting treatment for it is important. Sometimes it's a matter of of managing it, uh, reducing symptoms as best you can, but also just telling people around you that love you that you have this week and you just sort of prepare for it. Maybe it's the week you take off work or you don't work on anything really severe or you're spouse kind of takes up the slack or something. Sometimes that can help that I've found that to be helpful, usually getting everyone on board. Because as we've been talking about, a lot of women, a lot of people with uteruses will feel, uteri, uh, will feel (laughs) that they can't ask for help or that they need to just grin and bear it um, or they're embarrassed or something. And um, we just need to put reality out there for people to help us. And there's interesting ways of acknowledging this. I mean, if you've read The Red Tent, the idea that those who are menstruating got to separate themselves, um, you know, and some people would see that, that it was horrible, that they were shunned. And other, some feminist writers, you know, review this of like, oh, thank God they got separation. They, they could be different in this time. Um, and there was actually a house in Seattle for a long time. It was a red tent house, and you could go there when you were having your cycle um, to separate yourself from people. And I thought that was a fascinating idea. I never got to do it. Um, but this idea that, you know, we are t- truly hormonal creatures, and those people who have a tremendous amount of testosterone are also hugely hormonal creatures. Um, but I know for myself, like, my body, the shape of my body changes so much that I'm all, and every month I'm always in shock. Like, what's wrong with me? And then I realize, like, oh, I'm just extremely bloated. And that, you know, it's it's fascinating to be reminded how much we are 
animals with hormones um, and that it, it truly it truly impacts us. Yeah. Yeah, we're made for procreation. And uh, <laughs> it, it, it sometimes is a, is a nuisance. It's a curse. It's uh, a curse. Anonymous patron says, do you ever have straight up laugh out loud moments with your clients? Yes. I used to like it when my therapist in college occasionally laughed at me during our sessions. It made me feel like it was at least somewhat entertaining to her. I could see how that could be a problem, though. Rebecca, what do you think? I laugh so much in session. And with COVID, things are only getting funnier slash not funnier <laughs> uh, because people's lives are like in this bizarre place. I'm a, I'm a laugher. You actually complimented me on my laugh recently. I did. I have actually heard that laughter is one of the most healing things we can do with each other. Yeah. Tell us about that birthday thing. Oh, so uh, most people have probably experienced it by now, but um, having your birthday during COVID really is not the best. And I had my 50th birthday <laughs> during COVID. Uh, my birthday's on Christmas Day, so I've never been able to be a party person because no one's available. Um, and so my loving wife reached out to tons of people and used this service and 35 people responded back with video messages to me. Um, and it's incredibly sweet and it both will hang on a link in space forever. And I have it in a little book that I can open and, um, see everybody's videos. So I got to see 35 friends on my birthday virtually with loving messages and Kirk. What that, what that feel like to just have all those at the same time on your birthday? It was very, very sweet. Um, especially all you Christmas babies out there can relate that uh, my birthday has never been a, a fun day. Especially you Jewish Christmas babies. Yeah. <laughs> um, so to see so many people I love in one day saying such loving, nice things about me. I mean, it was just the greatest present. It was um, it was so, so sweet. And there were people there that I knew in elementary school. There were my therapist friends. There were my mommy friends. There, I mean, it was just a really wide variety. You know, family was there. This, the one that blew me away that I was not expecting at all is that uh, my son's best friend recorded me a message. And that one, like killed me um because to have a 16 year old boy say i feel safe at your house i miss you covid sucks i can't wait to see you again i was like (laughs) that one really got me um so it was was just very special and a lot of people included my art and one person actually went to a public art installation I helped create in my old neighborhood and did the video from the art installation that's still there and I had like forgotten that I had done that Um, so if you're looking for something to do for someone who's having a major birthday or graduation I can tell you this is it's worth the money yeah, and I, in my video to you, I believe I talked about how you have a great laugh and that you can probably hear it from across the room in a, in a loud room. <laughs> and to laugh is my favorite thing. 
I mean, if I'm meeting someone for the first time, if they don't laugh at my jokes and they don't make me laugh, I'm probably not going to make much time for them. Yeah. So you laugh with your clients a lot. All the time. And they know when I'm laughing. I wouldn't say I'm laughing at them. I'm laughing at the situation of life. Yeah. There was a great Carrie Fisher quote recently that came up at the day of her passing. And it was kind of summarized that I have to laugh at this because if it's only true and not funny, I can't live with it. Right. Um, so I imagine you laugh with your clients. You make me laugh. So I can't imagine you're not laughing with your clients. Um, probably not as much as you, given the way you described it. I will laugh for sure when it's, when it's happening. But the way that this person wrote in is like the the client was being laughed at, and I will mm. say I, I've never laughed at a client, <laughs> um, so uh, I've laughed with my clients. So uh, that's what I'll say to that. Um, last email here, anonymous patron. She writes, "I feel really ashamed to admit this, but I am experiencing sexual or erotic countertransference as a therapist," and. And I need advice. I need to know I'm not crazy. I read that this is common, but I rarely hear anyone talk about how therapists should manage this feeling. I have several clinical supervisors, but I'm too embarrassed to bring this up with them. Can you please help? What do you think, Rebecca? Well, first step is just to admit it to the supervisor you trust most and say you're going to really expose yourself. Um, But any good supervisor can handle this and they should tell you a story of how they've handled the exact same thing. Um, you know, this happens. It's, uh, we're in an intimate situation. Um, some of our clients are amazing people or remind us of a person we'd like to be in an intimate relationship with. There's nothing wrong with experiencing this type of countertransference. Uh, I remember in my first year of graduate school, or maybe it was my second because this teacher we had over two years, she told the story about having a client that she had this experience with and they had one attractive, unattractive feature to her. She didn't like big diamond earrings and they always wore this one big diamond earring. And so she would just spend the whole session staring at the earring <laughs> to remind herself of why this person wasn't attractive. <laughs> yeah it's very common and as rebecca is saying definitely talk with your supervisors about it and i've done full episodes on this before you can go to the website and search for erotic countertransference and i've done at least two episodes on it and i've developed the following nine things that i recommend people do number one is have an tell them backwards tell them backwards okay number nine (laughs) is to keep it in your effing pants uh, that usually, you know, does better if I build up to that. But yeah, oh. uh, the thing is, is when you have erotic countertransference, there's a risk of not keeping it in your pants and you want to keep it in your pants. Do not harm your clients. Do not convince yourself that it's possible to have sex with them or to start dating them when you know that that's not okay. Uh, so that's it. Number eight is... Explore your romantic and sexual needs because it's possible that you're not getting your needs met and you're looking to your clients to meet those needs. 
that's actually very common with erotic countertransfer, especially if it's overwhelming, if it's mm-hmm. uh, if it's intense. You know, there's a big, there's a wide variety of what we're talking about with erotic countertransfer. On one hand, it's just like recognizing that someone's attractive, and on the other end, it's like longing for someone. Right. Um, number seven is strengthening your attachments because that's probably going to help as well. Number six is awareness and mindfulness. Be aware of where your mind wanders when you're in session and outside of session and don't encourage any kind of sexual fantasy. Some people will say, well, I'll just fantasize about the person. Well, if you do that, you might actually build more energy around the sexual connection with that human being, which might not help your treatment of the person. Number five is consults. Every therapist should have at least one or two colleagues or more that they can tell anything to. And so you need those people, peers. Number four is therapy. Sometimes therapy, you know, I would talk with your therapist about it briefly. Maybe there's something there. Maybe there's not. Number three is stick to the frame of therapy because with erotic countertransference, there's a, or with any kind of transference, particularly erotic and romantic, there's a temptation to break the frame, meaning that you will text more or have more sessions or go over or self-disclose more than you would normally. And that's a slippery slope. Number two is don't shame yourself. Uh, shame drives your feelings underground. It sound, sounds like an honest patron that you do have shame and that your shame is actually keeping you silent. And that is not going to help for sure. Uh, it's normal to feel ashamed because of our society, but there's nothing to be ashamed about. And any supervisor worth a damn would understand that. And number one is to have a countertransference management system overall. We need to have a way of noticing and managing our countertransference, not just this, but um, but of any sort. Uh, a lot of people consider countertransference to be something that happens occasionally, and as long as it, there's not like overt problems, then they don't really need to do anything about it. And those people usually run into a lot of problems. Countertransference, a full, robust countertransference management system involves frequent check-ins with your body and frequent check-ins with how you're feeling when you're with clients, consultation discussions, supervision discussions, reflection, uh, and then, so that's awareness. And then how do you deal with it? What do you, what do you do with those? How do you analyze those feelings? How do you heal from whatever traumas are informing those reactions? It's really a good portion of a profession's, of a clinic, of a clinician's uh, life is to focus on this countertransference management system. I find a lot of people will say things, you know, I'll ask them a question like, okay, tell me about your countertransference. So they'll say, well, this client doesn't remind me of any my, anyone well. in my family. And I'm like, okay, that's a good start. <laughs> what else? They're like, well, what do you mean? I'm like, well, you know, when I'm asking you about your countertransference, I'm asking about how do you feel when you're with the client? Oh, uh, yeah, I'm just kind of neutral. Uh, oh boy. Like, no, you're not <laughs> like, mm-hmm. or if you are, that's notable. So, uh, having a really robust understanding and also appreciation for the importance of looking at this is really, really important. And it's not uncommon to graduate from a degree without that being fully emphasized to, to people. And so it's important that you do that. And research shows that when you have a good countertransference managed system, that outcomes are better. Science actually de- demonstrates that. And uh, sexuality is one of the most under-discussed and taught topics in our 
U.S. society. And if you'd like to beef up, beef up your understanding of how sexuality is repressed and dealt with, um, I've just taken a class from Dr. Bianca Lorino. Uh, her website is anti up PhD, no, anti up PhD. And she has tons of classes that are SAR, sexual assessment reframing classes that help us look at how biases impact the way that we look at our own sexuality and our clients' sexuality. Um, so if sexuality or sexual desire keeps coming up in your countertransference, you might want to explore how sexuality was taught to you and why this therapeutic environment is making that happen. So I, I took her class on um, super fat, which is 3X and above, and sexuality, and it was fantastic. Um, so maybe you need to learn a little bit more about how you view romance and sex and maybe there's something happening in the therapeutic relationship that's tipping you one way or the other for a reason yeah so what's the final word on today's episode rebecca uh i hope you're laughing i hope someone's laughing somewhere um please laugh (laughs) laugh at me (laughs) laugh directly at me if needed please laugh (laughs) and everyone out there please take care of yourself Why, Rebecca? Because if you can get vaccinated for COVID, we in July can go to a concert together. So I, I really want you to take care of yourself real, real bad. 